if you had a disciplined social teaching tradition that went beyond the victories of the moment and asked about 100 or 200 or 500 years of Christian witness in the public square for which our ancestors will be remembering what we said because it's all written down and we're accountable for it. I think that the vibe would be different because we wouldn't, people wouldn't just be so narrowly focused on right now. They would have a broader backward gaze to the tradition that we're responsible to and maybe a, a broader agenda for, for where we go from here. everyone welcome back to the can i say this at church podcast i am seth your host i'm glad you're here as you were listening to this um, my voice is still a bit raspy but not quite nearly as bad as it was a few weeks ago by the time you're hearing this and so i apologize in advance for the lack of clarity in some of my vowels and some of my consonants but if you will be forgiving i think you will really enjoy the guest before I introduce the guest, please stop right now, rate and review the show on iTunes, and then come right back. I'll wait the 20 seconds, and through the magic of editing, yay, you're back. Here we go. So, ethics and what a social teaching is for the church matters. And by social teaching, I mean what do we use to fall back on as we navigate the waters of politics and the waters of religion and the waters of divisiveness and culture and what we're called to be as Christians. What moral founding besides, quote unquote, the Bible do we have to fall back on? Because if we say it's the Bible, we don't always agree. Actually, we rarely agree on what those implications are. And that causes so much bickering between everyone all the time. And so how do we get past that? I think a big part of that equation is to learn how to lead. And a big part of that equation is to evaluate the ethics behind our thought processes and the ethics of what we preach on Sunday and the ethics of what we teach to our children and what we model. And so I sat down with Dr. David P. Gushy, who is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics and the Director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University in both Macon and Atlanta, Georgia. He is widely regarded as one of the world's leading Christian ethicists. He has authored or co-authored about 22 books, including some of the ones that I really like, uh, the two of which are A Letter to My Anxious Christian Friends, uh, which if you haven't read that yet, add that to the list. Uh, it is well worth the read as we navigate the culture of the political climate that we're in right now. It is, it is almost a form of memoir of what it's like to feel like you're being pushed out of your tribe. That was a side note. Take that one to the bank. But he has another book coming out as well that you'll hear us dovetailing at the back end uh, called Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. Highly recommend that book based on what I've read from it. it. looks like it's going to help me personally learn quite a bit about what leadership looks like, how to recharge as we do it, and how to do it right. Like what value should I be striving for? So I really think you're in for a good conversation and a good discussion. I look forward to you hearing it. Send me some feedback as you're through. Here we go. Dr. David Gushy. Dr. Gushy, thank you so much for joining the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, I'm thankful that you're here this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could work this out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know we've been working on it for some time, but life happens and that's okay. 
Luckily, the internet is uh, is most of the time always here, and so we're able to make it work today. Uh, I'd like to start with a bit of your history. I'm not certain. I know in in the work that I read a lot of, I'm familiar with your work, but I don't know how many uh, that listen would be would be familiar with it. And so I'd like to start a bit of your history and what you do today and kind of how uh, your upbringing in the church has impacted what you do now. Sure. Um, I teach Christian ethics at Mercer University um, in Atlanta and in Macon. Seminary students are in Atlanta and the college students are in Macon. So I go back and forth. I've been here. This is my 12th year, uh, which is about half of my academic career so far. I grew up in Virginia to a Catholic family um, and left that behind when I was in high school and had a conversion experience with the Baptists, uh, which got me into the Southern Baptist world in the 70s. Pursued a call to ministry at Southern Baptist Seminary back in the day. Um, Ended up getting a PhD in Christian ethics at Union Seminary in New York and graduated in 93 with a dissertation on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust, mm. which, which was published as my first book called The Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust. And that kind of got my publishing career going. And uh, I guess we're averaging almost a book a year since then, um, since 1994. And I've, been, I've taught at Southern Seminary at Union University in West Tennessee for 11 years and now in my 12th year here at Mercer. How far away is Macon to Atlanta? I'm not familiar with Georgia. Well, uh, not enough to be able to say that. It's a 90-mile drive one uh, way. Oh, man. It gets a little old. Uh, <laughs> I've listened to a lot of, uh, a lot of things on the uh, you know, podcasts and um, uh, you know, books and so on. Made a lot of phone calls on that, on that trip. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, my, my drive is only 15 minutes, but it's still my, my podcast. I listen to about two a week that way, you know, mm-hmm. a half-hour round trip, so... I'm curious. So what changes have you seen from the seventies version of Baptist faith to today? Massive changes. And I write about it in my memoir, which is called still Christian. The Baptist that I encountered in the late seventies for the first time, I mean, they were, they were very diverse. That was, that was part of, I mean, the Southern Baptist convention was where I, you know, encountered Baptists, and, um, you know, you, Mainly, though, they are characterized by an emphasis on evangelism, uh, personal morality, and world missions. So they wanted people to have a personal relationship with Christ. They wanted people to live a good moral life, and uh, they wanted to share the gospel. Uh, and that was that was really what I was trained in as a new Christian in my last couple of years in high school. There was a lot of diversity. The convention had not fallen apart yet. So you had the whole range of opinion that now has gotten splintered among three different denominations. That is the Alliance of Baptists, the Cooperative Baptists, and the Southern Baptists. Mm -hmm. And they were far, far less political uh, than, that is worldly political, than, than eventually developed with the Southern Baptists especially. So it was a, it was a good moment for me to meet Jesus in that particular community of Baptists. And um, I'm always going to be grateful for that experience while sad about everything that has changed since that time. Yeah. Well, I wonder, so I went to Liberty and I know they were founded in the early seventies. And so is that kind of, is the seventies about, or maybe the eighties about where things began political? Yes. The um, 
fundamentalist uh, side of the Baptist world had withdrawn from what they would have called secular or worldly politics for, you know, most of their history. Um, but if you think about the period in which you have the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 19-teens and 20s, when the fundamentalists kind of got routed in that, in that controversy, they retreated to their churches and Bible colleges and families and so on. A lot of hunkering down, waiting for Jesus to come back. But in the 70s, people like Jerry Falwell and others decided they, they needed to re-engage politics from a fiercely conservative perspective. Uh, and they developed a strategy in partnership with activists in the Republican Party to basically take over the Republican Party and then, to, and then take over the country. And this happened at the same time as the Southern Baptist Convention controversy, where it was a similar strategy, take over the convention mm-hmm. apparatus and eventually take over the nomination or yeah. retake from their perspective. Yeah. I, um, I read not long ago about uh, the convention, and I forget what year it was. It was right after um, Reagan, I think, signed in the Mulford Act. Isn't that what it is in California on gun rights? Maybe it's not the Mulford Act, where the Black Panthers showed up with shotguns at the courthouse and everybody was like, whoa, you can't, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And that there was a vocal minority in the NRA that came in and basically at the convention and basically just overnight changed the face of the NRA from what it was to what it currently is. Yeah. Yeah. The more I learn about the Baptist faith and the divisiveness every few decades, it really is sad. I wonder how much good we could have done as a people if we'd have stopped arguing with each other. Uh, Baptists, um, because we don't have a central authority, um, and we don't have a hierarchical structure. It's probably inevitable that that there's this uh, fighting and division and so on. But but it is sad, and it has it has cost us quite a bit, and cost us in terms of mission too. I think the Baptist brand name, you know, is very much damaged, and mm-hmm. it's one reason why even a lot of Baptists that are starting churches right now don't even use the name Baptist. It just it's it's been dragged through the mud enough that that's just not not helpful. Yeah, no, I get that. So when I tell people that I go to church and they're like, well, where? And then when I say I go to a Baptist church, they always recoil. Uh, Similar to when I see people say what they do for a living and they say that they're a pastor, sometimes people recoil as well. Uh, And then I always have to caveat with, no, 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 let me tell you a bit about our church. Like, here's what we do. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound Baptist at all. I was like, well, maybe, maybe that's the problem, but we are a Baptist church and here is what we're doing. I've heard you say, or I've read you say in the past that evangelicals, um, specifically, I guess in the West suffer from a lack of social teaching and social conditioning. What do you mean by that? Uh, the story that I just told about Baptists is a, could also be seen as a story about evangelical Christians more broadly, theologically conservative. I'm speaking mainly of theologically conservative white Christians. And they came out of, in the 20th century, they came out of fundamentalism. And so they, they started off from a place of, of separatism. When they started to engage the world after World War II, during and after World War II, with people like Carl Henry and others, they just started to engage the culture and start writing about politics and writing about specific social issues and so on. But they didn't have a tradition for dealing with the issues of the day. Meanwhile, other Christian communities do. There's a Catholic, um, what I, it's called the Catholic social teaching tradition that at one level is about 125 years old now, but 
at another level, it's as old as Catholicism. And there's a mainline Protestant social teaching tradition, uh, ecumenical Protestant teaching tradition that goes back to the early 20th century, at least. But evangelicals didn't have that. And so they were just kind of making it up as they went along. And partly what I think they ended up doing was having pretty shallow engagement with politics. And they were easily co-opted by the Republican Party because they didn't have a bigger or separate vision. Mm -hmm. They just kind of embraced whatever the party talking points were in, in many cases and essentially were indistinguishable from a political group. That has certainly been true, at least, um, I would say, in the last uh, 20 years. And so for, for those listening, what does, a social te- uh, what does a social teaching, like what the Catholics have or what mainline Protestants have? And by that, I, I assume you mean like Methodists, maybe? I don't, what, what denominations would you mean by mainline Protestants? Methodists, uh, Presbyterian Church USA, Episcopal sure. Church. So what, what are some of the tenets of, of a social of a social doctrine like that? What does that look like? It is a combination of theological principles that inform public engagement, like uh, justice and human dignity and solidarity with the oppressed and um, uh, love of neighbor as self and hospitality and whatever else they, you know, these traditions have worked with from the Bible. And then uh, decades and decades of specific documents that have been released by authorities in these bodies. I'm thinking of the Catholic documents uh, released by the popes and by um, the by Vatican Council II and by the bishops of different countries and by theologians and ethicists. And then on the mainline side, it's not as well known, but the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches has, uh, as well as individual denominations, have been releasing documents, you know, for a long time. So it's scholarly, it's well-grounded most of the time, and it's directed uh, at helping to form the consciences and attitudes of Christians that they're addressing. So so those traditions provide a kind of a base of operations for thinking about any new issue. You're not starting from scratch, you're starting on the basis of a tradition. Yeah. And then so weekly, or or however often, it's it's congressionally that you're engaged in that. So you're your your pastor or your priest or whoever is the one that's administering here's what we're talking about and here's how we're thinking about it and and the interesting thing about these churches that have social doctrines or social teaching traditions is they don't feel the need to address these issues every week it's usually um in in special moments where there's an issue of concern like like now we need to think about immigration and so they draw on the history of teachings on immigration mm-hmm. or or a war or whatever the issue might be that is pressing. But one of the things that has happened, at least in some Protestant, Baptist, and evangelical churches, is like every week somebody's preaching politics about something, you know? Mm-hmm. And that actually is not a good idea because it reduces the Christian message down to something political or something about a major controversial issue every week, and that's not real good either. Yeah, that's the same problem that we have. Um, well, you see it when, um, oh, I can't think of the name, Paige Patterson or Jim Jeffries, or uh, that's probably the wrong name. Um, Dr., uh, not Dr. Falwell, but Jerry Falwell Jr., who I wouldn't call him a pastor, but he's definitely influencing those that will become pastors. Mm-hmm. And and so how do we how do we hope to engage in a conversation with those that do want to make everything political uh, when I know I'm often accused of doing that, when someone says something political and then I say, well, Jesus said this, which is when you said earlier, you know, social justice and how we 
talk about immigration and how we treat our neighbor. It's basically the New Testament. Uh, but I find when I engage in that with people, uh, they just call me a liberal Democrat, which I may be liberal, but I'm definitely not a Democrat nor a Republican, if it even matters. Uh, but liberal is probably a fair, a fair assessment. So how do we how do we engage in a good way with people that are so divisive and also not become divisive ourselves? I, I think there's a time and place for every conversation. Um, maybe because I do this kind of work for a living, I don't feel the need to have an argument with people every time I go out for dinner or um, or end up in a conversation with somebody. Sometimes I'll just say, "Nah, I'm not going there today. I'm not. I'm just not interested in that conversation today. Uh, come to my class, or you could read this article, or maybe another day." But but I don't. I, I think people get boring and pretty old pretty fast if we're always laying the laying the politics on them you know Mm -hmm. but on the other hand we have to preserve space for articulating our deepest convictions and and our deepest convictions for christians are derived from jesus in the new testament and they do have at least principled implications for politics emphasis on you know justice and mercy and dignity and compassion and love and hospitality and solidarity with the oppressed. Yeah, you can derive an awful lot of political implications from those principles. And it's when you move to that level, you know, I think that love of neighbor requires X right now. Then, you know, people might say you're getting into politics, but you can just as easily say I'm trying to apply my faith in real life. Yeah, no, I agree. What is it like being a Christian ethicist in the middle of Georgia? In the South, because I find that at least, and I'm in Virginia now, I live close to Charlottesville. And so especially around the annual anniversary of what happened in Charlottesville last year and, and since then, I don't find, I, I find that I I don't want to have that conversation with people because I feel like I come from a position of arrogance or a moral high ground, even if that's not my intention. And so what, how is it like being a Baptist ethicist in the South part of America? In a lot of ways, the South is and and always has been a battleground for the soul of this country, home ground for slavery and Jim Crow, though certainly not the only place where racism was a problem in America or is a problem. Um, And now the politics of the South is beginning to change with the growth of African-American political consciousness, as well as a growing Latino population in Georgia. Uh, Like right now, we are looking at a, a governor's race that it's kind of old South versus new South. It's kind of a, a a white guy who was known for voter suppression efforts going against a, a black woman for the first time in a governor's race uh, in Georgia. And that's just, that's just fascinating. So, you know, the politics of gender and race politics uh, and, and where is faith? I mean, both of these candidates proclaim themselves to be committed Christians. And so what do you make of all of that, even though their politics are completely opposite? Um, the history of the white churches and the black churches in Georgia is so different. Supposedly the same faith, but always very different politics. Mm-hmm. So it's it's endlessly fascinating. There's always a lot to do. It's always controversial. Um, but, but that's just what I was called to, so it's what I do. Over the course of your teaching career, do you see a change in the mentality of students that are coming in? Like, has there been a shift in foundational objectives before they come to school? Or is it pretty much still the same thing? Students always reflect the cultures out of which they come, though sometimes they're in 
critical reaction against them. Um, and the thing that's a little bit tricky for me to, to speak on that is my context have changed. Like these are Southern Seminary in the 90s, Union University, and then Mercer. They're all Baptist institutions, but they're, they're very different Baptist institutions. And Mercer is a pretty progressive Baptist institution compared to the other ones. So, so my students are, are changing, but it's also because of where I am now. In general, students tend to be more progressive than their elders, um, tend to be in a position where they're asking questions about the world that they are inheriting and you know, thinking critically usually about, about that inheritance and what they would like to make of it. Mm-hmm. And right now, I think <laughs> that our, our students are living their coming of age politically in the Trump era, which is, I think, fundamentally different from anything that has gone before. And so yeah. they're going to be marked by this in a way that I don't even know if we can predict what the consequences are going to be 20 years down the road. I'm genuinely fearful for, for what the consequences of not necessarily the Trump administration, because um, I'm sure there's things that he'll do well just because hopefully Congress can figure out what they're doing and he just has to sign the law, not do something. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I, I am genuinely fearful that in, I mean, 10 years, my son is voting age and I have no idea what the, um, what the landscape of either religion or politics will look like them. And I really hope that they're more separate than they are now. Uh, I'm hope I hope so too. And I, I think that the current marriage of the conservative Christian activists with with somebody like Trump is like so obviously wrong to so many people that maybe it will bring a change. Yeah, I hope so. On the political side, I hope the Republicans will will uh, you know demonstrate a little bit more sanity in who they pick next time, and um, and that the the discrediting of the Christian right people uh, will be will clear the field for some new voices. Silent killer, let me. And this is not a question I planned prior because the events of when we first started planning this have changed since then. But I don't really care who the Supreme Court nomination is, uh, whether or not it, it ultimately still becomes Kavanaugh or it's someone else. Uh, that's above my pay grade. But what I do continue to see is Christian leaders specifically, and by proxy a lot in their congregation, um, victim blaming uh, sexual abuse, specifically from people that are supposed to be Christian. So how do I approach that? How do I, that is something I feel like I have to pick a, a land. This is the the line in the sand. And we are, I have two daughters. Like how do I navigate those waters in a way that isn't political, but also isn't what Franklin Graham is saying and also isn't name calling at that. How does that how, what is this? I guess what I'm asking is, what does a sexual ethic look like? And then what's the accountability behind that? You might say that the events of the day that we see on TV and uh, 
that are the daily background noise of our lives, they do provide like the the background to everything that we experience. And and they become moments where values are tested and clarified, right? I, I think that it is a good moment to clarify, you know, what we believe about how men and women are supposed to relate to each other and how we're supposed to relate to our sexuality. And I do think right now everything is is damaged by politics. Um, I know for a fact that if this were a Democratic nominee, uh, the Christian right people like Franklin Graham would not be taking the same tack. They would be taking the opposite tack. Yeah. But conversely, probably so would many of the Democratic senators. People's arguments are so deeply corrupted by their politics that it's almost like their arguments don't mean anything intrinsically. They just reflect who they want to win. But a Christian voice ought to get beyond that to say, well, when, you know, here's what we do when somebody has been victimized, you know, and we need to stop that victimization and we need to not duplicate it and, and, uh, and, and, and reimpose the pain by doing victim blaming and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so if you can step back and say, here are the principles that are at stake here, here's what uh, we need to be telling our young people, maybe some value can be drawn from this horrible, horrible moment that we're living through. Uh, yesterday I saw two things, uh, one that gave me pause. So one was a, a political cartoon on that. And it has a gentleman, I think he's watching a news channel, which I can infer what channel it would be. But it basically, and he says, boys will be boys. You're talking about Kavanaugh. But his daughter sitting to the left of him playing on a book or whatever, uh, playing on an iPad probably. And and she says, would you say the same thing if it was me saying that? And then the the cartoon doesn't give any answers. It just... That's the end of it. And then I saw another thing that said if it was uh, Judge Cosby that was being nominated uh, since Bill was convicted this week, um, what would you say? And both of those have so much tension in them. Um, I didn't didn't answer any of them, but they both logically make sense. Um, And what I heard you saying earlier is is we have to really check our confirmation bias. we're, We're reading our politics the same way that fundamentals fundamentalists read the Bible with here's the goal that I need to prove and what scripture can I find to, um, to make that mesh or am I wrong? And I mean, it isn't just that Republicans want their nominee conservative Christians want what they believe to be a pro-life anti-abortion nominee. And, and, uh, so it's, it's about winning and it's about winning with specific goals. And I mean, it's like, We've already laid the foundation to to do total compromise here. Or they have, if they're already giving themselves away to Trump, uh, Kavanaugh. Uh, even if everything that is uh, he's been accused of credibly were to be true, it's still it's still a better picture than what we have with the current president of the United States. And so it's like the threshold has already been lowered. Yeah, that's called what is that called in philosophy? The Overton window, isn't that what it's called? Where we gradually move things to one way or another so that the new normal is 10 years ago's extreme or maybe it's uh, not called is I think that's what it's called. I forget what it's called, but yes. And, and so, um, and, and the reason for the continued alliance with Trump is because he helps them to accomplish certain things that they believe in and, uh, the odiousness of everything that we know about his life and his character and behavior, it, it doesn't matter. You bracket that off because because it's practical uh, in achieving your goals, and I think the same thing is happening here. I think um, it, it's a, a, a tremendous. See, that's the kind of thing where if you had 
a disciplined social teaching tradition that went beyond the victories of the moment and asked about 100 or 200 or 500 years of Christian witness in the public square for which our ancestors will be remembering what we said because it's all written down and we're accountable for it. I think that the vibe would be different because we wouldn't, people wouldn't just be so narrowly focused on right now. They would have a broader backward gaze to the tradition that we're responsible to and maybe a, a broader agenda for, for where we go from here. And what I hear people talking about specifically with the Supreme Court justice is that Christians want to overturn Roe v. Wade. But the more that I think about it, I don't think that the church or our country is really ready for what the implications of that would look like. I don't think that we are set up in a way to deal with a reversal of something. And the reason I say that is I don't believe that most Christians are actually pro-life. At least they don't act that way. Right. They they might be anti-abortion, but I, I don't see it because if they were pro-life, they would they would view immigration differently. They would view um, social helping and social ne- uh, social webs to catch the the least among us to, to feed them, to, to shelter them. Uh, and so I don't believe that if they're honest with themselves, they are pro-life. And so I just don't think that the country is ready for a seismic shift like that. I think that that's probably right. And I have written for a long time that we have grown dependent upon abortion culturally in the sense that we have a sexual revolution culture in which sex has um, has become completely uncoupled from marriage, right? So we depend on birth control, or if birth control isn't used or doesn't work, we depend on abortion to underwrite our sexual practices. One out of five or even one out of six pregnancies ending by voluntary abortion, that's not an exception. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a practice, right? Mm-hmm. The only only way one could imagine a post Roe v. Wade culture would be, well, unless there were a dramatic change in our mating and dating and sexual habits, uh, there's going to be an awful lot of uh, underground abortion or people obtaining abortions, just like in the past. Yeah. If they have the money, they can go get it, and if not, then they do do it yourself with all those disastrous consequences. Yeah. So. Another thing is that generally once a right is extended, like uh, a right to social security in, in old age or a, a right to disability insurance uh, or to um, Medicare at 65 or whatever, right? Um, almost never are rights reversed. What has been understood in our country is a right to access to abortion under most circumstances and that right has been contested, but it has been a part of the law for 45 years. People build their lives around their understanding of what their rights are. Rarely do, do free people voluntarily choose to roll back their own rights, you know? Um, but if we do in this case, um, a lot of people are going to feel like their rights are being violated by this change of law. And um, I would expect a fierce backlash against the Republicans for for that development. And I, I I find it hard to imagine a major change in cultural and sexual habits in the part of on the part of Americans that would make that even feasible. Does that yeah. make sense? No, it does. Yeah, and I, I agree. Um and I would say the same thing for for you know gay marriage. I have I have quite a few friends that are either lesbian or gay. And yeah. I don't really hold 
my view of scripture doesn't hold that in. I, I, as long as they're married, I don't really see an issue with it. I don't, I, I know I'm a minority there. I know that I'm a minority there. Um, but I'm certain that I am. The tribe that I was a part of um, yells at me whenever I talk about that. Um, I am curious, though, do you, is, there can't be anything wrong with tribalism because that's the way that uh, humans are built to function and work in a in a group to, to protect themselves. Um, but I find that my views on faith doesn't always align with Baptist, but it doesn't always align with many other things either. I feel almost like I need a new denomination, and there are many like me. Um, do you? I feel like denominations either have to merge or will merge sometime in the next ten to fifteen years, or something in the church will break in a way that can't be repaired. To your comment on tribalism, it is true that human beings are group creatures, and that we um, we find our identity uh, among us, whoever we define as us. And it is also true that. A lot of our tribes are—they're either breaking apart or they're shi- or they're shifting right now, um, and that's true in the religious in the religious world. Um, there are a lot of people who feel disillusioned with their tribe right now. Um, disillusioned Catholics. Think about everything the Catholics are dealing with with the sex abuse scandal. Um, disillusioned moderate Baptists say who either wish the church would go ahead and be fully accepting of LGBT people or would not, but get it resolved, right? You know, um, uh, disillusioned Southern Baptists who think the denomination has become too political and too conservative on politics, uh, disillusioned evangelicals, um, and so on. So um, there's a lot of ex-people right now, ex-Catholic, ex-Baptist, mm-hmm. ex-Christian, ex-church-going or post, they, they've left something, they don't know where they're going. And, uh, you know, I think I speak to and for a lot of those people actually right now in my own writing. I agree. Um, that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you. Um, yeah. I definitely agree. Do you think that there will be a new denomination or we'll just fall away from the church and all that will be left are the extremes on both sides? Because I can't see... If it's still the way that it is now, and if my son is a mirror of me, and he probably will be at least when he's 18, or the exact opposite of me, because that's, I think, how kids work, uh, you know, total re- rebellion, um, I can't see him uh, re-engaging in the same battle just for giggles. Right. Like, which I, I need to know where the fence is so that I know which side of the fence I'm on. Uh, you know, I, I can't see my generation or my generation's kids wanting to invest that kind of effort? I don't see it. Um, I think that the non-denominational churches are in the, the denominational churches that pretend they're not denominational, you know, so-and-so church that doesn't have a Baptist or whatever mm-hmm. in the name, um, are the ones that are showing some, some uh, attractiveness still right now. Um, the Methodists are about to fall apart over LGBT issues. Mm-hmm. And this it's worked its way through a lot of other nominations too. I we do see a steady trend towards uh, people being less in, interested in church and less interested in denominations, and certainly not interested in investing their lives fighting. Right, they're just not going to do it. The, the life is hard enough, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that you know the thirty somethings and younger, if, if the churches can't get their act together and stop fighting over whatever politics, especially. Uh, they'll just stay home on Sunday morning. 
Yeah, or or whatever morning it is that we do. Whatever morning uh, it is. You have a book coming out, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, and I think divided age is an apt an apt description of of not only our country but you know France and Spain and uh, Brexit. There are many countries that are quote unquote divided today. So I guess my question is, what exactly is moral leadership? Because if I ask ten people, I'm going to get ten different answers. Mm-hmm. Um. Hey, I'll show your. Are we are we uh, uh, on visual or just audio for this? No, I'm, I'm the only one that can see you. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, here is the book, and what what we do in the book is profile uh, 14 great moral leaders of the past, and one of today, Malala makes the list. Malala from uh, Pakistan, and so in a sense, we we reflect on the lessons to be drawn from great lives of the past, and. You know, in the book, we, we talk about, you know, what is leadership and then what is moral leadership. And essentially, um, it's the ability to um, mobilize large numbers of people to pursue a transcendent moral goal that makes the world a better place. And so moral leaders are people who, because of the impact of their lives, leave the world better. Um, liberate a group of people, articulate a moral vision in a way that is very powerful and needed, um, stand up for or with the oppressed, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, change the world. So, so the, some of the people we cover in the book um, include uh, William Wilberforce and Florence Nightingale, Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells, Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa, Oscar Romero, Mandela, Elie Wiesel, Martin Luther King, John Paul II, and Malala, and also Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And kind of one of the reasons we wrote this book was to speak to this moment where we can't we can't agree on anything in this country, including who might qualify as a good leader. Right. And we hope that by telling the stories of these folks, we might have the potential of of inspiring people to say, well, we may not agree on anything right now, but we do agree that Romero or Bonhoeffer or Mother Teresa was an inspiring leader. And there are elements of of their lives that we would like to imitate. I think that moral leaders give us models. It's one thing to argue about like positions or perspectives or principles, but, um, but models, models touch us in a different place. Models are like, I want to be like that. Uh-huh. And I teach a class on this right now at Mercer. And I really love that moment when I hear somebody in class say, I want to be like Ida B. Wells, you know, or I, I now have a clear idea of what I want my life to be about. So models give us a sense of direction, inspiration, and vocation. And that's what I think we need really, really very badly right now. So I hear that. And here was my question as I read through portions of the book. So if if the goal of a leader is to uh, you know bring people together and hopefully leave the world in a better place than they found it through inspiring people to you know to change, uh, the the people that were changed don't agree that that good that 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 was a good change, and so I, they would argue maybe that that was not a moral leader, and so like the people that speak against what Martin Luther King did because they don't like that social change, and, right? And so who gets to define what successful change is? Yeah. Well, we talk in the book about a kind of a moral intuition. You, 
you know a good moral leader when you see one. But it is also true that in almost every case of the people that we study in the book at the time, they had fierce opposition. Um, this is part of the human condition. Um, we see through a glass darkly and we don't even always know who has it right at the moment. We just have to choose. We listen, we perceive, we, we follow or we pursue whatever path we think God is leading or what is best. And then, and then we just have to leave it with God. And so, yes, like at the time of his death, for example, Martin Luther King had like a 40% approval rating. Uh And now he has like, everybody loves Martin Luther King. Right. Right. Um, At least they say they do. (laughs) Uh, You know, so the best one can say is that a kind of gradual, sometimes grudging, almost consensus emerged that this was a good leader who led in the right direction. It wasn't nearly as clear in 1967 as it is in 2018, but now we honor him. And you might say that uh, an image might be like a military battle where the, where the territory is shifting, who controls what. You might say that moral leaders take a certain bit of terrain and stake a flag there and say, this is right. Or alternatively, that is wrong. Slavery is wrong. Jim Crow is wrong. And we will end it. And in the end, a society says, okay, you're right. We're with you. But never does that process happen without a fierce struggle. And a lot of times, a lot of blood on the ground. Literally metaphorical. Yeah. Our our moral leaders in your experience or in your research, do they have to be posthumously or can there be, is, is, are we intelligent enough as a culture to recognize leaders today um, as opposed to just recognizing the tribe that we want to be in and hope that we picked the right fight? Or, or is it always, you know, years later that we realize, Oh, they were on to something. Um, I'm looking at my list. Um, in some of the cases the moral leader was widely recognized in their lifetime as having made a great contribution. I'm looking at like Florence Nightingale, what she did on the medical side with nursing and military medicine was widely recognized at the time as a huge contribution. Um, Though still there were people who didn't like it, but mainly people who, who felt like they were being criticized. Right. Right. Um, Mandela in his lifetime recognized as a transformative figure in South Africa. Um, But you know, treated as a terrorist for much of his adult life. Right. Right. Uh, Oscar Romero um, becomes a a passionate advocate for the poor of El Salvador towards the last few years of his life. Um, Deeply honored by the people he stood up for, hated by others, gets assassinated while serving mass, um, celebrating mass. Bonhoeffer, he's, you know, he's a traitor and and a criminal uh, it took, it took a long time for him to be properly honored for who he was. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's usually contested, but there's almost always some people in the lifetime of the person, uh, who, who honor them and get them for what they were at the time. Right. Last question on that. Um, and then I'll, I'll, gi- I'll give you back your morning. Um, so for those that now are our leaders and whoever they are, I won't, I won't try to name one, uh, for today's, for today's history, 
how do they make sure that they're feeding themselves? And and maybe one of them is listening, or maybe one of them will listen in years to come. Uh, because I think to be a leader, um, when you're always gravitating people where the change needs to be, I, I think that can be exhausting. And so as a leader, how do you how do you shelter or protect yourself from becoming just overwhelmed? You know, that's a great question, Seth. I mean, one of the things that that the book tries to do is to talk about the personal lives and well-being of each of these people. And um, being a leader in any significant way is exhausting. And partly because being a leader in the moral arena usually involves wrestling through conflict. To take care of themselves in the normal rhythms of self-care, getting enough rest if they can, retreats, breaks from the struggle. Um, I mean, not every minute can be devoted to the to the whatever the cause is. You know, you got to be a human being. You gotta gotta have some balance in your life. But but this is something we wrestle with in these classes where we talk about these leaders because hardly any of these people would anybody say, "Oh, here is a model of self care." You know, I mean, like Martin Luther King was not a model of self care uh, or family care. He was going, 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 going all the time for his cause and was exhausted by the time he was killed at the age of 39. Um, but, but for most normal people who are not leading international movements or whatever, there is the ability to say, you know, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take the weekend off. I'm going to go on a vacation. I'm going to get enough sleep. And I'm going to remember that I am a human being and I have limits. My students sometimes who are most morally engaged report deep feelings of burnout after a while. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I, especially if they keep losing, right? right. If the side keeps losing, it's burnout plus disappointment. Yeah. And we need a sustainable pattern of life that can keep us, you know, going day by day and, and year by year. Where can people uh, engage with you either online? Uh, and, and I mean, your books are available, uh, obviously, at Amazon. You also get links to those books on your website. Um, but where would you send people to uh, engage in this material and interact with you? On Twitter at DP Gushy. And uh, I have a, a fan page on Facebook where I usually post stuff. Uh, so that's uh, David P. Gushy. And uh, people, you know, I, I, I'm happy to dialogue with people to the extent that I can by email. They can send me an email at Mercer at uh, my Mercer email address, which is gushy underscore DP at Mercer.edu. I try to be available to people and, you know, in various times, uh, I get inundated. I can't always be as sure. fast, but, but I do try to respond to people who have serious desire to be, to engage me. And, uh, that's part of what I think I'm called to do. And one last uh, thought for people listening. So, so the moral leader, um, book, it is not inherently religious or political or theological. It is more just leaders just leaders overall. Yeah. yeah. A lot of them, most of them were religiously motivated and we do look at their religious convictions, but they were not, they were not of the same religion. And, um, I mean that in such a way to say, uh, this isn't quote unquote church leadership. This is, as you read no. it, this can impact your day to day. You can impact your marriage. It can impact the, whatever, whatever Avenue that you lead in. That's um, right. It's, and, it's lessons um, that can be scaled. It can be scaled. And, and so I'm hoping this book will be like studied in businesses and, um, Considered in uh, 
you know, medical ethics classes or, or, or you're being a, a Bible study at church because, because I really, I think it's, it's accessible to everybody in that yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Dr. Gushy. I appreciate it. I'm glad we could work this out and, um, um, maybe we can do it again sometime. No, I would love to. There is, there is a big connection between ethics and the way that we think about things before we speak about them. And I think that people like Dr. Gushy and people like Colin Holtz and other people that are speaking in what I would call a prophetic way uh, really have something to say about the future of our church. And I would highly encourage you to engage in the thought processes of what the ethical implications are of the way that we live and the ethical implications of the faith that we say that we believe in if we don't actually engage in. Highly encourage you to get his new book called Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. I've read portions of it. It is fantastic. So much to be learned there from both a historical and from a personal level on how I can better use my voice for change, how I can better posture myself in a way that I influence those around me in a positive way, in a way that will influence the world for a better place for everyone. To the patron supporters, thank you so much. You are the engine and the fuel that drives so much of this show, more so than you know. If you have not yet, please go and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is always the king of any marketing. And if you have considered, you've been on the fence about joining into the patron community, I look forward to seeing you there. I look forward to chatting with you there. And I look forward to giving you extra stuff. I have, I have a few more ideas as well that I'd like to keep under wraps until I'm certain that I can do them. Uh, but with your help, we can. We'll talk soon. The music in today's episode is by Canadian artist Rianne Kyla. You can find more information about Rianne at riannekyla.com. You'll see links to that in the show notes of the show. And as always, you will find the music specific to today's episode on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist by the same exact name. We'll talk to you next week. Be blessed, everyone. A place she once called.